1 Timothy chapter 5 is where we're at. 1 Timothy chapter 5, if you have a copy of the scriptures, it's at the tail end of the Bible, just about this much Bible left in 1 Timothy chapter 5. So turn to Revelation, start working leftward, past Hebrews, eventually you'll hit 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Good chunk of verses, the second half of this chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. You guys remember the Apostle Paul was a missionary of the early church. He helped plant this church in Ephesus, the city of Ephesus. You can still visit it today. It's in Greece. He helped plant the church in Ephesus, probably 50 A.D., 40 A.D., and um, he left Timothy there, one of his other fellow missionaries. He left Timothy there, and he's writing to the church through Timothy. Um, he's, he's, he's talking to Timothy, but he's also talking to the church as he writes to Timothy. So that's sort of who's writing and who he's writing to. Um, I have to admit um, that if it were my choice, we would be preaching through the Gospel of John and studying the compelling life of Jesus. I have to admit that if it was my choice, we would be studying the epic of Genesis and the tales of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I have to admit, if it was my choice, we would be studying the book of Psalms and the beautiful poetry that flowed from King David's pen. But here we are, studying this church manual, sort of, um, that to me is not nearly as exciting as any of those other portions of Scripture. Nevertheless, Despite the lack of excitement, I hope that we will experience the helpfulness of 1 Timothy. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, the apostle writes that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. All scripture is profitable, but not all of it is as equally exciting. Um, and that is where we are at today. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25 is not as exciting as Genesis, John, or the Psalms. Um, nevertheless, we need the help that it provides. Um, it's kind of like eating your vegetables, right? <laughs> I love milkshakes. I love steak. I love sugary cereal. But if I only ate those things, I wouldn't survive. Um, and so it is with us. If we don't study some of these vegetable-like portions of Scripture, we will be malnourished, and I think that'll be evident as I read through these verses. There's a lot in here that God can use to help protect us and lead us into the future. Okay, another foreword. Um, the title he's going to use here uh, for church leader is elder. You guys remember from a few weeks ago, I explained this to you guys. Um, the office I fulfill is one office, the office Jonathan fulfills, it's one office, but it has three titles, biblically. Elder, pastor, overseer. Um, and, and the Apostle Paul here is going to use the title elder. Now, interestingly, um, it's kind of like the way I was talking a few weeks ago, how the most common way that we pray is with our hands folded and our eyes closed. That's the most common way we pray, right? That is never commanded or exemplified in Scripture. Never. Um, nevertheless, that's the most common thing we do. Well, similarly, with this office of elder, pastor, overseer, the most common title the Bible gives this office is elder. But for some reason, we use the one the Bible least uses, which is pastor. 
Um, Pastor is used a couple of times in the New Testament. It's a biblical name for what I do and the office I fill. But it is the least common. Um, Elder is used far and away more than the title pastor is, like 10 times more. Um, Nevertheless, I think we just think maybe pastor is cooler. And I kind of got to agree. I kind of got to agree, right? Elder is just not cool. Like if somebody asked me, CT, what's your job? And I said, I'm an elder at Woodside Royal Oak. They'd probably think like, I was in a cult or something, right? Like, it's just not, it's not cool. It sounds weird. But it is more commonly biblical than the title pastor. Nevertheless, they are talking about the same office again. But just so you know, that's what Paul's talking about here in 1 Timothy 5 when he uses this phrase. Okay, let's get into this. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verses 17 through 25. Brothers and sisters, hear the words of our God. Let the elders who rule well... Be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. As for the elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging. Do nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So before I begin this opening illustration, I want to acknowledge that I know this is a painful sore spot for many, especially sports fans in Southeast Michigan, so I'm sorry about that, but I have no shame, and when I think I've got a good analogy or illustration for a sermon, then I'm going for it, no matter how much you guys may be triggered. Here we go. Okay, so I want you to think about this. One of the greatest travesties in all of sports, one of the greatest examples of doing less with more in all of sports history is the fact that the Detroit Lions have had three of the best offensive skill players in the last two generations of football, and we accomplished absolutely nothing with it. The Lions were gifted by the football gods with three of the best offensive skill players in the last 30 years, and we accomplished nothing. So Calvin Johnson... Megatron, I believe, is the best wide receiver in the history of the game. In my educated opinion, he is the best ever. Likewise, Barry Sanders can easily be argued as the greatest running back of all time. That one's a harder case to make, but if I've got an all-time team, I'm going to consider Barry Sanders. Finally, Matt Stafford, he's not in the category of the other two as far as all-time greatness, but of the quarterbacks of the last 20 years, he's definitely right up there. And almost amusingly, after 12 seasons with the Lions, his very first season with another team, Stafford goes to the L.A. Rams and wins a Super Bowl championship. (laughs) A lot of people wanted to hang a banner in Ford Field 
on his behalf because it doesn't seem like we're ever going to get one. These three athletes were unthinkably gifted, and the Lions organization was incredibly gifted to have them be a part of the franchise. But how did the Lions steward these gifts? How did they manage these incredible talents? What did they do to put these guys in a position to succeed? I think we can agree. They did a laughably bad job. And again, I'm not sure there's a better example of a team doing less with more than the Lions did over the last 30 years. Well, as the apostle continues his instruction to Timothy and to the Ephesian church, he's once more discussing church leadership. And specifically, he's discussing how the church can care for and support and steward or manage their leadership, the elders. In other words, for me, for the other elder pastors at our campus, there's a way that you can relate to us that will help us help you. There's a way to support us that will help us succeed and make the most of our gifts and our leadership. Now, through this illustration, I realize that I am likening myself to these great Lions players and I'm likening the church to the Lions organization when the reality is that as a pastor, I'm more akin to Joey Harrington or Dan Orlovsky than I am to those great players. But just roll with it, okay? I'm, I'm twisting the illustration a bit to make it work, but I'm not twisting the text, okay? Because it is true that godly pastors are a gift to the church. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 10, the apostle writes that Jesus gave... Jesus gifted the church with pastor teachers to help lead, to help mature the body of Christ. Pastors are a gift from Jesus. Godly pastors are intended to be a blessing from Jesus to the church. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, the writer encourages the church saying, let your leaders lead you with joy. Let them exercise oversight with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. In other words, the writer is saying there's a way that you can follow your leaders, in this case your pastors, there's a way that you can follow your leaders that will make leading you joyful and vice versa. There's a way that you can follow your leaders that will make them groan with misery. So this is a big part of what Paul's getting at in 1 Timothy chapter 5. How can we steward our leaders? How can we relate with our leaders in a way that will help us get the best out of them? Well, Paul is going to share with us at least three things. First, he's going to say we support at least some of them financially. We support some of them financially. So as we'll see, I don't think he's saying that all pastors have to be paid, but some of them are for sure. Look at verses 17 and 18. Paul transitions from discussing care for widows. You remember last week, chapter 5, verses 3 through 16. He has a long section discussing care for widows, and now he transitions in verse 17 to discuss care for elders. Verse 17, he says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those elders who labor in preaching and teaching. So Paul says all elders should be doubly honored. All elder pastors are to be respected and cared for. But even then, there are going to be some of the elders who are especially tasked with the ministry of the word, laboring in preaching and teaching, especially make sure 
you honor those brothers. And to honor someone doesn't always include paying that someone, but oftentimes it can. And as we look at the next two verses, uh, financial compensation does seem to be in view. So in verse 18, Paul quotes a couple of proverbial sayings from the Old Testament. He says, honor the elders who preach and teach for you, for you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So I likened pastors to athletes. The apostle likens us to an ox, but whatever. <laughs> Honor the elders who preach and teach for you, for you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So again, these are proverbial sayings that speak to both the practicality and the justice of paying your preaching elders. So practically, he says, look, if you muzzle an ox when it's treading out grain for you, you are not going to get much grain. Because a muzzle on an ox keeps it from being able to eat. And if it can't eat, it's not going to have strength to tread grain. When you don't care for them, when you don't support them, you hinder their ability to serve up the grain of God's word for you. So again, practically, your need to feed on God's word is going to be hindered unless you support your elder pastors. But the second proverb speaks to the justice of the matter. He says at the end of verse 18, the laborer deserves his wages. In other words, if someone works for something, they deserve that something. It's theirs by right. The laborer deserves his wages. So if you are benefiting from pastoral leadership, then the pastors who've led you deserve the wages they've earned from you. It's a matter of justice that's being denied if they're not. <clears throat> Earlier this week, really big deal for our family, a really surprisingly sad day for me, we experienced the death of our vacuum cleaner. Our vacuum cleaner died. And I'm like attached to this thing, okay? For some guys, it's their lawnmower. For some guys, it's their car. For me, it's my vacuum cleaner. We've been through a lot. We've spent a lot of time together. Listened to a lot of podcasts over the years using that thing. But here's the thing. I had it coming. For one thing, I never changed the filter because you had to take it out, rinse it in water, let it dry for 24 hours, but I don't have a 24-hour period with which I can go without my vacuum. So I never change it. Off, uh, other times, I would let the bag get too full. It would overflow, the engine would heat up, and oh man, I definitely vacuumed up way too many non-vacuumable things. <laughs> Legos and pieces of food and children's socks. I treated it like a shop vac, <laughs> when in reality, it was just a normal household vacuum. And guess what? It died. I didn't take care of it. I didn't give it what it needed, and it's gone. And it was a surprisingly sad day to me. I walked past it in my garage this morning, and I was like, there it is. I don't have the heart to put it on the edge of the road yet. Well, Paul is saying something not too different here. We can burn out our pastor elders. We can make their job a burden if we don't honor them, if we don't care for them, as God intends us to. Now, I want to say here, that I think you all, this church, Woodside Royal Oak, you are exemplary in this regard. From my experience being, being here over the last few months, we have found you all to be remarkably supportive and kind-hearted and thoughtful of us 
and our children, and I am not surprised by any of this because it is exactly what John Morales told me about you guys. He and Anna gushed about how loving and gracious you guys are. I didn't even believe him. I was like, gosh, John, there's no way. But they gushed about how loving and gracious and hungry for God's word you all are. And we too have found you guys exemplary, honoring us, loving us. And I think also about Jonathan. For certain, Jonathan is uniquely gifted and a very godly brother. But I think also a part of why he was able to excel here as a pastor was the way you guys supported him, the way you guys got behind his leadership, the way you guys loved his wife and children. A couple of months ago, Meg and I went to the Platonus Life Group Christmas party back in December. And uh, yeah, hands down front, as always. And uh, the Quans attended as well, Jonathan and his family. And I was struck by the affection and tenderness and love between the members of that life group and Jonathan and Michelle and Kate and Clara. I was struck by the gentleness and the sincerity of love between these true groups. It was beautiful and powerful to witness. And I think that him being treated like that is what enabled him to excel so well as a pastor here, excel so well that, of course, now he's been poached by another church. So this, of course, works against you. But I do mean this in all seriousness. You guys, on the whole, are really good at this. And so all I can do is thank you and encourage you all the more. Let's continue to honor and support our pastor elders, yes, with our finances and our giving to the church, but also in every other way encouraging them, loving them. How can we steward our leaders? How can we relate with our leaders that will help us get the best out of them? First, we support at least some of them financially. Secondly, we show respect to our pastors. We show respect to our pastors. And Paul is going to identify a specific kind of respect. Sure, we should have a general demeanor and attitude of respect towards our elder pastors, but Paul is meaning a specific way that we can respect them. So look at verse 19. Paul states, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So Paul says, if someone brings an accusation against an elder, if someone accuses one of them of wrongdoing, give the elder the benefit of the doubt. Give them the dignity, the respect of not just assuming every negative thing said about an elder is true. I think this is just part of being a leader of a lot of people, that people are going to have a lot of opinions about you. And a lot of the opinions are going to be spoken about you and about the decisions you make. And I think what Paul is saying here is simply, don't rush to judgment. Just because someone is accused of something doesn't mean they did that something. And so allow time for a process that's going to create an established case, either proving or disproving the accusation. An example of this over the last few years from my life, from both the right and the left. So after I've said things, decrying abortion on demand, I've had people accuse me, oh, you're a Trumpster, you're a right-winger. 
And conversely, when I've said things condemning white nationalism, I've had people say to me, oh, you're a liberal, you're a Marxist. And I'm like, wait, hold on, take a breath, people. Let's have a conversation. But it's this kind of rushing to judgment against a leader or anyone, for that matter, that's not respectable. And so Paul is saying, give them the respect of not admitting a charge, except on evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, at the same time, verse 20, he says, as for those elders who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So the apostle gives a balanced solution here. On the one hand, he says, don't rush to judgment. On the other hand, he says, don't delay judgment. On the one hand, he says, don't rush to judgment. On the other hand, don't deny judgment, right? If an elder is accused and the accusation sticks, then rebuke them, rebuke them publicly in the presence of all. Because here's the thing. We see this in sports. We see this in politics. We see this in the church. A leading athlete, a leading politician, a leading pastor does something morally egregious, and what happens next? A cover-up. Far too often, there's a PR effort to control the narrative, to suppress details, to preserve the organization's reputation. We can't let this story get out. But the apostle says it should be just the opposite in the church. If one of your elder pastors is accused and the accusation is proved, rebuke them publicly. But you see, it's been this way since the garden. Adam and Eve, when they first sin, what do they do? They cover up with fig leaves. And then they hide from the presence of God. And so what does God do? Well, he graciously but firmly draws the truth out. Adam, where are you? Eve, what have you done? So church, we got to say this. We don't serve ourselves we don't serve this church, and we certainly don't serve God by covering up the truth related to the sin of our leaders. If I or any of the other pastors here do something that would bring disrepute upon the name of Woodside, so be it. It matters not. You must say something. If any of the pastors here do something that would discredit the name of Woodside in this community, it matters not. You say something. Bring it to the light. I'm giving you permission. More importantly, God's word is giving you permission, strangely enough, to fire me. Right? That's an awkward thing to preach about. But it can be biblical. If a leader persists in sin... If an accusation sticks, rebuke them in the presence of all. That's the way to be truly reputable in our community when we get honest about the failures of our leaders, not trying to cover them up. How do we steward the gift of leaders? How do we manage and relate with our leaders to help get the best out of them? We support some of them financially. We show respect to them, not rushing to judgment nor denying judgment. And finally, we select our pastors wisely. We select our pastors wisely. In other words, we serve our pastors by not making them pastors when they're not ready to be. So to go back to the previous illustration, Barry Sanders was a great running back for the Lions, but what if they'd signed him when he was a sophomore in high school? 
probably wouldn't have gone as well as it ended up because he wouldn't have been helped by being rushed into that position. Well, Paul says something similar here about potential elder pastors. Verse 22, he says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. So this idea of laying on of hands, it's sort of the final step in making an elder an elder. It's a way of commissioning someone into an office of leadership. You guys remember you did this for me just a few months ago in December. Well, Paul says, don't do this hastily. Don't rush someone into leadership. They may be attractive, they may be gifted, they may have a great personality, but if they are not ready for leadership and they end up hurting people and damaging the church's relationship, then Paul says you are complicit for making them a leader in the first place. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, lest you take part in the sins of others that you hastily laid hands on. Paul then adds this curious line about wine for Timothy. At the end of verse 22, Paul had called for purity, purity from the sins of others if you commission them too soon for leadership. Keep yourself pure from that. So verse 23 seems to qualify that statement about purity. Keep yourself pure, but I'm not calling for the kind of purity that would include never drinking alcohol. Like Timothy, if you're sick, use a little wine for the sake of your stomach. But then Paul breaks from that parenthetical thought. He goes back to the idea about too quickly putting someone in leadership. He says in verse 24, the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others only appear later. So Paul says, some people's sins are obvious. (laughs) Some people's sins are clear as day. You know, these people's sins way before they are judged for these sins. But other people, not so much. For some people, their sin only appears later over the course of time. So, for example, think about the sin of drunkenness and the struggle of alcoholism. There are some drunks for whom it is painfully obvious that they are drunks. You can smell it on them. You can hear it in the way they talk. You can see it in the way they act. When they get a DUI, when they get a public intox, no one is surprised. You saw that coming a long way out. It was conspicuous. It was obvious. But on the other hand, there is this phenomenon known as functional alcoholics. And this is an expression of the sin of drunkenness that's very different from the one before. So this is how one medical doctor describes it. Quote, some people seem to be just fine even though they abuse alcohol. Experts call these people functional or high-functioning alcoholics. You can still be one even though you have a great outside life with a job that pays well, home, family, friendship, social bonds. A functional alcoholic might not act the way you would expect him to act. He might be responsible and productive, He could even be a high achiever or in a position of power. In fact, his success might lead other people to overlook his drinking. And it's the same sort of dynamic that can play out with any other number of sin struggles, whether greed or lust or anger or arrogance. Sometimes it is obvious when someone indulges in these sins. Other times they only appear later. And so again, Paul is calling for patience and discernment and wisdom when selecting our leaders. If we make a leader ready, if we make a leader lead before they're ready to lead, then we set them up for failure 
in the same way if the Lions had signed Barry Sanders when he was 15. He would not have had the success that he eventually ended up having. Now, obviously, there's so much you can do. Whenever you're selecting leaders, there's always going to be liability. No matter how scrupulously we vet our potential elders, there's always going to be the possibility that they go sideways on us. But what the apostle is trying to do is mitigate risk as much as possible. Don't think just because they're gifted. Don't think just because they're magnetic and charismatic. Don't think just because they're a great speaker doesn't mean that we should rush rush them to leadership. So this means that when we're nominating elders and deacons, which hopefully we're going to do next month leading up to the annual celebration, we're going to share those names with you guys so that even you all will have a chance to provide feedback We'll do that starting next month, Lord willing. And when I was brought on as a campus pastor here in December, over the course of the last fall, there was a lengthy process, numerous interviews, a process that even included getting feedback from you guys because we want there to be a high amount of assurance that this is a wise decision and that God is in this. Pastors are a gift to the church. Godly pastors are Jesus gift to the church. And Paul here is helping us maximize their effectiveness for us. We don't want to do less with more like the lions. We want to get everything out of our elders, our deacons, all who lead us. And we do that by supporting some of them financially. We do that by respecting them, not rushing to judgment nor denying it. And finally, we do that by selecting them wisely not rushing them to leadership before they've been tested first. This is very practical, earthy, on-the-ground guidance for leadership and for the way the church operates. But church, as I conclude this morning, it's important to remember that our ultimate leadership comes from heaven. It's important that we regularly acknowledge that Jesus is our chief shepherd. He is our lead pastor. He is Lord of heaven and earth, and he is the head of the church. He is the head of this church. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, the apostle says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. But now through the cross, by repentance and faith, we have returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls, Christ Jesus. In other words, church, Jesus died for us so that he could shepherd us through life. So whether you've identified as a Christian for 40 years or this is your first Sunday in church, I call on you to receive the grace of Jesus. Receive his grace that flows from the wounds he received, not because of his sin, the wounds he received because of our sin. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The apostle wants us to have qualified leaders, tested leaders. But friends, the truth is that none of us are qualified in a very important sense. All of us have been tested and failed. And it is only in the gracious wounds of Christ 
whereby our souls can be healed and we can return to the true shepherd, Jesus. It's not me, it's not Jonathan, it's not Morales, it's not anybody who can shepherd us to heaven. It's Christ Jesus, our chief shepherd, our heavenly overseer. Are you following him? Have you received him? Is he pastoring you through life? Today can be the day. Open your heart to receive his mercy, to experience his redemption, and join us here as we seek to fulfill his purposes on earth. To the glory of his name, I pray. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.